0: Brethren and sisters Well, today, as you know, we are to consider um, The greatest commandment that God ever uttered to his people Uh, Surely, we must be interested in that Nobody in their right mind ought to neglect it If they mean business about their discipleship Um, First and fundamental things are perpetually true and therefore our discipleship is unveiled in some of these first and fundamental things which were spoken by Moses on the plains of Moab to the children of Israel. So our first reference this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and as you look at the page you realise at once that we are in the presence of the great catalogue of the Ten Commandments the great moral law of God which is essentially timeless and perpetual is there any man in this house or woman who dare point to any one of these commandments and say that they have been cancelled surely not every one of those commandments remains inviolate and timeless if you want to argue about the keeping of the sabbath I am not disposed to do that now that is as true as ever properly understood now then, with that conviction in our hearts, that we are here in the presence of eternal truth, we are here in the presence of something which is solemn and holy, turn over a page to Deuteronomy 6 and have a look at verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord. Now I want you to pause there for a moment uh, to stay with these words because as you know they certainly express the idea of the unity of Yahweh the God of Israel. That in the midst of the nations who multiplied their gods with every developing need and whim uh, in the midst of rampant polytheism the God of Israel proclaimed his oneness and his essential unity. That is undoubtedly true. But we ought to understand this as well. There is a great deal more to it than that it provides us with a solid argument against the plurality pur- of God's Defined in the doctrine of the Trinity. We ought to understand that this solemn thing is more than an apt way of um, opposing the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, there is more in this than mere theology. There is something here which surchar- surcharges the whole life of the people of God. The Lord our God is one Lord emphasizes that the Lord our God is one Lord alone and that there is no other. He is the whole God, not partial, not sharing his nature or glory with any other. And therefore, because he is complete and entire, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That is to say, the nature of the commandment is related to the nature of Yahweh, the God. A complete God demands complete worship. The entire God uh, provokes entire submission. Where there are many gods, then the worshippers have to share their submission, just as a man with several wives has to share his affection. But with the God of Israel, there is no such division of worship or submission. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God alone. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now I'm saying that that great declaration was such as to affect the lives of those who understood it. So developing the idea then of the fullness of Israel's love for Yahweh their God the word I want you to concentrate on now is in um, verse 5 Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart with all thy soul and with all thy might and the word is all. In Strong's Concordance it says that this word all means the whole. Now, if you think that already today we are splitting hairs, um, can I tell you that the word in the Hebrew is the word kol. K-O-L. K-O-L. And it simply means every. The full total. All manner of. Without exception. And the point I'm wanting now to make is I want you to see the difference between all and the whole. And the best way of seeing the difference is to turn now to the third chapter of the prophecy of Malachi. Because there I think, I hope, we shall see the difference illustrated. I'll bring you to Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to read the passage um, Well it's verses 7 to 10 actually Verses 7 to then I'm going to read them um, As far as I can From the authorised version Malachi 3 verse 7 From the days of your fathers Ye have turned aside from mine ordinances And have not kept them Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. But she say, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But she say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings ye have robbed me. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye robbed me even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven And pour you out a blessing And there shall not be room enough to receive it Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse Can I read that to you now From the revised version of the Bible We won't read it all We will read again verse 10 In the revised version of the Bible Bring ye the whole tithe into the storehouse bring ye the whole tithe into the storehouse in the authorised version bring ye all the tithes in the revised version bring ye the whole tithe now you want to know and I want to know why is that what is the difference well the difference is this brethren and sisters the word all is essentially quantitative the word whole is essentially qualitative these people of Israel at this time they were bringing all the tithes all right. if by all is understood the right number counted and added up they were bringing them all in the sense of the right number but what they brought was what they could easily afford to do without as you know they brought the lame what they could afford to lose they brought the blemished and even that that they brought, they brought in the wrong spirit, they brought these things in a spirit of weariness. it was not brought gladly and given freely, it was brought reluctantly, as a nuisance, it was given half-heartedly, as though it was an imposition, wrung from them by force. Malachi 3, verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein have we spoken against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God And what profit is in it that we have kept his charge And that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts So they were bringing thee all of the tithes In the spirit of misery and reluctance So that is the, the difference um, the, These two words in this third chapter of Malachi Illustrate the difference between all and the whole All is just the sum total gathered together and added up. But whole is certainly all that. And in addition, the true and willing spirit with which it is brought. The glad spirit of offerings freely made to God. Freely made because it is God's due. And freely made because this is what belongs to him. Now with that in mind therefore come back to the great commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and read it again as it should be read Hear, O Israel the Lord our God is God alone and thou shalt love the Lord with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole might it enforces the truth that the love of Yahweh is fixed in the final analysis in the spirit and uh, the wholeness is focused in the glad and willing submission to his will I know it's fashionable to say that obedience in the Old Testament was essentially a matter of the letter and that so long as a man obeyed God in the letter and uh, God took very little notice of the spirit which permeated it Um, In the New Testament it is said God uh, takes notice of the spirit It's in the New Testament that a man's spirit comes into his own But in the Old Testament obedience was a performance A matter of the letter But I say to you that a proper understanding of the nature of the great commandment Printed there on the parchment of Deuteronomy chapter 6 Does not support that view It's not for nothing that Moses was careful to say this, when he was given the commandment to love God and to love um, God with the wholeness of man, he said in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thine heart. God paid a great deal of attention to a man's spirit in Old Testament times. To this man will I look, even to him that is poorer than a contrite spirit, and that trembleth. At my word Although David sinned grievously In the deep inwardness of him He was a man after God's own heart Whereas Saul's failure Was not only that outwardly he disobeyed God But more especially that In the deep inwardness of him He was never in submission to God His spirit was in rebellion The real effect of being in God's purpose Is to make a man to be outwardly What he is inwardly Whichever way it is. David repented with a sorrowing spirit. Saul played the fool and dealt finally in the black market of um, sin and witchcraft. No, it won't do. In the final and ultimate sense, a man is discovered in the spirit of his life. And I tell you that is true in the Old Testament, as true as it is in the New Testament. The great commandment is perpetual in its meaning, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole soul, and thy whole mind, and his words shall be upon thy heart. Now then, in order to expose the meaning of this in the light of our own discipleship, we shall need now to come to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. I'm going to read for you verses 34 to 40 of Matthew 22. Matthew 22 verse 34 But the Pharisees when they heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence gathered themselves together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question tempting him Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second, like unto it, is this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hangeth the whole law and the prophets. Now the answer that Jesus gave to the lawyer, I'm suggesting to you, was conditioned by the nature of the question. The word greatest, which is the greatest, he said. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? He meant, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And the word greatest can have two meanings. It can have the meaning of quantity, or it can have the meaning of quality. For example, you could say, which is the greatest country in the world? and if you were wanting to measure it by quantity then I think you would have to say that China is the greatest country in the world because you would be measure it you would measure the greatness by way of population on the other hand if you wanted to say which is the greatest country in the world and you wanted to measure it by quality then uh, some people would say that Britain is the greatest country in the world Uh, measured by democracy, experience and political wisdom. Great Britain is the greatest country in the world. I was careful to say some people would say that. Um, I say that because I remember once suggesting this to an American and he wouldn't agree. He said, no, uh, the United States measured by that measurement is the greatest country in the world, bearing in mind its democracy, It is the land of the free and it is the greatest country therefore in the world. I was therefore provoked to tell him a story about an American who was taking an Englishman into America for the very first time. They were in the ship sailing up the Hudson River approaching New York and they came face to face with the Statue of Liberty and the American pointed to it with some pride and said well there you are that's the Statue of Liberty my friend it's the emblem of air freedom and the Englishman said yes it's very impressive I noticed though it's turned its back on America and it's facing towards its real home <laughs> can I say uh, if I, I, I believe there are some Americans here can I say that I don't really mean it Well you know what I mean There you are The question of greatest Has these two possibilities Greatest from the quantitative point of view Greatest from the qualitative point of view Now I want to suggest to you therefore That there was no real difference of opinion In the day of Jesus About which was the greatest commandment But the question of the lawyer was an invitation to Jesus to say something about the quality of the commandment itself, which by common consent among them was the greatest. And it was in this way that the lawyer hoped to catch the word of our Lord. Jesus' reply therefore was qualitative. When he said this is the first and great commandment he meant this is the first commandment in importance and value. And I'm fortified in that view by recalling that in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 there's a record of how the lawyer said to Jesus what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said thou knowest the commandments What is written in the law? How readest thou? And the lawyer replied by quoting the very commandment which is now under consideration and which we've read in Matthew 22. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy might and thy neighbour as thyself. And Jesus said thou hast answered right this do and thou shalt live. So it does not seem that there was any real doubt as to which was the most important commandment. That was common ground between them. The lawyer, it seems to me, is now pursuing the question to its final issue uh, and is asking in Matthew 22, really, what he is asking is, what is the nature of this great commandment? And I'm saying it is a question of value It is a question of quality And Jesus' answer was fashioned By the nature of the question That is to say The answer that Jesus gave Was qualitative Now how can we be sure of that? Well This is the reason There are three words In the Greek language Which are translated all in the New Testament three different words and they are translated all in the authorised version one is the Greek word hapas and means a number of things brought together the the sum total added up let me give you an example of the use of hapas in Luke 15 uh, the parable of the prodigal son it says the younger son gathered all together and took his journey that means he gathered together all the things he needed and he left home so that's the first word that's translated all hypas the other one is translated all and it's simply the Greek word pass and it means the sum total or any part of the sum total for example It is used in Mark chapter 1 In this way Mark chapter 1 verse 5 You can read about John Baptist There went out unto him All the country of Judea And all they of Jerusalem Now you can see That that all there Doesn't mean absolutely all Does it? Uh, In other words It's an absolute expression With a limited sense And that's the sentence I borrowed from Brother Robert Roberts So that's Another word, all, which is used. And then this, the third word, translated all in the authorised version, and it's the Greek word holos. H-O-L-O-S. Holos. And it means the whole of anything. For example, it's used in this way in the parable of the labourers in the vineyard. Why stand ye the whole day idle you can see the sense of it now this was the word which Jesus used when he described the great commandment the very word he used was the word holos the whole and you can see immediately that it's utterly in harmony with Deuteronomy chapter 6 thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and thy whole soul and thy whole strength and with thy whole mind because whole includes all there is and even then that spiritual element which makes it true and acceptable to God so let us notice what Jesus is saying about the nature of our discipleship as he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 the love that God is asking from his people is not some detached theoretical calculated obedience wrung from them through slavish fear or worked out on the basis of profit and loss. It is a love which is responsive, heartfelt, glad, rational, willing, with the whole man, with the whole personality. It is not sickly, sentimental or anemic. It is practical, realistic and may sometimes even have to be stern to be true. For example, when I said stern this is what I mean It may be such a love as to be strong enough to perform an act of surgery if true health is to be maintained or secured because the king once said If thy right hand offend thee cut it off One-handed life is better than Gehenna it is a love which has to be the love to learn that if a man will keep his life he sometimes has to lose it it marks the quality of whole love if a man keeps his life that is this present life and nurses its benefits and he does it by abandoning the principles of his Lord he is never the same again His life thereafter is a poor, empty, withered, impoverished, emaciated thing. He may have kept his little world, but he has lost eternity. But the man who fights against the lure of false values, the man who renounces the prizes because they are opposed to his Lord's way, the man who is obedient for love's sake, then that man may have lost something measured by human measurement, but he has found life. I tell you, you may mark it. He is walking with a lighter step. There is a lilt in his voice. There is a joy in his heart. He may be poorer as men count wealth, but he is richer for eternity. So, let us notice the wholeness of love. It is telling us, if we have understood it rightly, that there is no instrument of our personality which is outside of it. There is no part of our life which is hardened against it. That part of the soul or of the mind or of the heart which is so hardened at last will become atrophied and at last will be in danger of perishing. So finally, can I urge upon you... uh, that that when I say finally don't think I've finished yet sorry don't want to (laughs) mislead you oh no no Um, I noticed you look relieved I'm sorry (laughs) finally for this part of the argument I meant can I urge upon you that the teaching about the great commandment as it is discovered in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and as we see it interpreted by Jesus himself emphasizes one thing it seems to me and I want to put it to you it seems to me to be emphasizing essentially that it is in the spirit of our life that the obedience is discovered best of all it is the spirit of our life which tells most that is to say it is the qualitative element which is so vital it is with the whole heart it is the inwardness of us where the real truth about loving God is discovered i think i don't think we should quarrel with this really i think in your own hearts and minds you approve of this you know that it's in the inwardness of our lives that we are truly what we are it's the it really it lays solemn emphasis on the fact that um, if any man hath not the spirit of christ he is none of his the supreme and abiding test of what we are is what we are internally our spirit is the reality whether it's good or bad we've been thinking about it already this week as a man thinketh in his heart so is he how true that is it's not in the occasional external things that we do that the truth about ourselves is discovered it's not in the careful premeditated things we say that our hearts are truly revealed I mean the meanest man in Durban today may tomorrow give the biggest gift to charity the most generous man in Durban today may have nothing to give God does not judge a man by the occasional things but by the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that sometimes that is occasionally men are weakest in the very things for which they are notably strong. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? Let me give you one or two examples quickly. Abraham surely Abraham the supreme example of faith in the Old Testament occasionally twice and turned to a subterfuge when he thought that he was in danger for Sarah's sake. Moses, the meekest of men, once loses his temper. Elijah, the daring, fearless prophet, once bleeds in terror when he's faced with a woman's wrath. Peter, a man of rock-like courage, is vacillating and craven once when he is faced with the challenge of a little servant girl. John Zebedee, the apostle of love, the blue seer of Galilee, is calling down fire from heaven upon some poor Samaritans because he he thought they had rebuffed his master. Occasionally, men fail in the very thing for which they are notably strong. But you see, it's rarely that the occasional things reveal a man's spirit. Sometimes a man of God will fall into language which is vulgar, And sometimes, occasionally, a vulgar man Will occasionally fall into the language which is holy Our Lord once said Every evil word which men speak Of that shall they give account in the day of judgment And because in this place You are well taught in the word of God You will know that a better translation is Every idle word Every idle word that men shall speak uh, That will be the, the method Uh, 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 And the moment of their judgment Because it's the idle Unpremeditated Unprepared word Which falls from our lips artlessly It's that That reveals more exactly What we are really like internally So can I give you some advice You would be well advised my brethren Not to form a judgment Of your Speaker, this week by the words which he has carefully prepared. If you do, it will be a very doubtful measurement. How eloquently a man speaks, or how enthusiastically he may sing, that's no real measurement. A better measurement is how often he has to burn his secret candle both ends perhaps another measurement might be how often he has to take a late breakfast you know sometimes in the daily papers you will read glowing accounts of the characters of famous men wonderful stories of what they were like I sometimes think an evil thought. I say to myself, I wonder what their wives would have to say if they wrote the article. (laughs) Of course it never happens. Wives are too loyal and too heroic to do that. But brethren, is it not a frightening thought? Do you think it might ever come to pass? So then the idea is to mark carefully the need to look penetratingly at our inward spirit. The question that we have to face when we are thinking about the great commandment is do we know what spirit we are of? I know I have said that it is not revealed by the occasional prepared things we do, but I must be very careful to say that it is certainly revealed by the occasional things which come upon us. That is to say, the crises. How we behave in the unexpected crisis reveals microscopically what we are like inside. The tests of the spirit, you see, come not at some announced hour for which we may prepare in advance because if the crisis is expected it's not very likely to prove to be a test of our spirit. Very often it is along the line of the commonplace that we are most surely revealed. As I've said already this week, the truth is like a wine press and the king is treading it and by his teaching and by his activity in human lives he's making men to be outwardly what they are inwardly. In other words, the inwardness of us is being brought out by our experience in the word of God and in the truth. The spirit is revealed in adversity and in prosperity in the place of obscurity or in the place of popularity, in the time of defeat or in the time of victory, among the infinitesimals of a busy daily life, heroes are made for God or traitors are revealed. Do you think heroes are made in defeat? Well, I can tell you, they are. Sometimes men are greatest. In the hour of defeat, if they know what spirit they are of. I want to bring you to Matthew 13 now. Pursuing the same idea, the spirit at last is the supreme test. Matthew 13. Now, we're going to have a look at that little parable. It was in verse 24, you remember. I don't think we need read it again, because you knew it ever so well. And we've read it once. You notice what happened when the servants discovered the tares? They wanted to weed out the tares, and the householder said no. He restrained them. He said, Nay, lest haply. While ye gather up the tares, ye root up, ye, ye root up the wheat with them. And that's usually interpreted as though he was saying, be careful because weeding out the tares will disturb the soil and the root of the wheat will be disturbed as well and so it will be harmed and may be lost. That's what is usually I think uh, Given as the explanation Of why he didn't want the tares moved Now if that is true All I can say is He was a very bad farmer indeed Anybody here who's used to farming Or horticulture will know that When it's done properly It's perfectly possible To remove weeds from plants Without harming the plant itself and uh, in, in fact it's much better to do it it's much better to remove the weeds and let the plant grow on than to leave the weeds and let them smother the plant. so anybody who is, has any knowledge of horticulture will know that this is a perfectly proper process to pull out the weeds from amongst the plants and if this man meant you mustn't do that because you'll disturb the root of the wheat then he was a very bad farmer but I don't think he did mean that let's have another look at the parable notice verse 26 but when the blades sprung up and brought forth fruit then every word in the bible is important then appeared the tares also it was not until the plants were well grown on and had reached the stage when the years of corn were well developed as the word puts it had brought forth fruit it was not till then that the presence of the tares was discovered and the reason is this the plant which is here called tares and which when I was a boy in North Oxfordshire where I live and where I was born and where perchance I may die that plant is called cockle and its botanical name is lolium timulentum now the thing about lolium timulentum is this that it's almost identical with wheat In fact, it takes an expert to know the difference and you can't tell the difference till the corn begins to appear until the corn in the ear begins to form and then the wheat is fruitful and lolium timulentum is barren I can imagine what really happened Uh, one day one of the workers uh, came to the foreman of the farm and he said to him uh, um, have a look at this and the uh, foreman looked at it and said it's not wheat it's cockle how it came there I know not and he said don't don't try to pull it out now Lest happily when you gather up the tares You root up the wheat with them What he meant was you, you won't know the difference You won't be able to tell the difference You can't tell one from the other at this stage Working at ground level Working at ground level You can't tell one from another We shall have to wait To the harvest till the time when the ears begin to appear Let them both grow Until the time of harvest he said And then the difference will be evident. And then the Rebus will gather up first the cockle, and afterward the wheat. Oh, it's a solemn thing, isn't it? It's telling us something solemn. It's telling us that, well, it's telling us something which is written all through the Bible. And it's telling us something which in our deepest heart we know to be true. It is not in the external things that we are truly revealed it is in the internal and the invisible things where we are really discovered the true reality of any man is found in his spirit in his motives in his will this is where the fruit is really grown and this is where men are really barren can I ask you at last to come back to Deuteronomy and look at one thing We know clearly that the love of the people of God for Yahweh Was in the faithful obedience they rendered to him Glad and willing and joyfully Love was practical in its realisation Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God he is God of gods and Lord of lords the great God the mighty and terrible which regarded not persons nor taketh reward he doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment Love ye therefore the stranger for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Compassion for the fatherless and the widow and the stranger was a practical method of manifesting their love for God. This was an approximation to the character of the one they worshipped and so it is in the realisation of our own discipleship this is what I mean the truth of the first great commandment is conditioned and realized by the second great commandment thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself the proper love of self is conditioned uh, by the love of God it becomes a passionate desire that I may be what God would have me to be this is only true of This is the only real love of self, to love self so that it may be what God wants it to be. We are commanded to love our neighbour then in that way. We are to love our neighbour so that he may be what God would have him to be. And just as love of self does not make me blind to my own faults, then love of my neighbour does not make me blind to his. Just as love of self makes me the enemy of the things which harm me, so love of my neighbour makes me the enemy of the things which harm him. So I must be anxious for my brother, for his well-being on every level of his life. I must work to heal his wounds, to rest his weariness. I must with him strive together to attain into that unto that condition where God is worshipped and his name is glorified. And just as I would never willingly harm myself, so I must never willingly harm my brother. And the motive? Why not? Because my brother is one of God's other children. You see, we may love our brethren for many reasons, but fundamentally it is for God's sake. You know, David once came to, the, into, when he once came into his kingdom, he said, is there any of the? Is there any left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Is there any whom Jonathan loved so that I may love him? And they found him poor, Mephibosheth. He was not a perfect man And he was a man with faults. But he was lame in both feet And David loved him And he cared for him And nurtured him Although in some sense he was undeserving And he did it for Jonathan's sake His friend It may be an illustration on a low level But it's a true one When a man has learned about God and when a man has come to know him and when that man's heart has been touched by the divine love what will he do? Well he will begin to say are there any here of the children of God whom I may love for God's sake and he will find them and he will company with them and he will care for them and if they be lame he will If they be lame he will hold them and help them and together with them in spite of their weakness and in spite of their failings he will seek with them the vision and the virtue and the victory of love. Now if you can feel this to be true in your deepest heart I hope we shall not have spoken this day in vain.